two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a new podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to the second episode of The Flip Side, a new podcast series from Barclays Research where we debate the difficult questions facing global investors. My name is Jeff Melly. I'm the co-head of research at Barclays, and I'm joined today by Ajay Rajadox, our head of macro research. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be here, especially to discuss a topic that we have internally debated for years. In this edition, we're going to examine one of the biggest puzzles about the U.S. and other developed markets, the lack of wage growth. We have incredibly strong labor markets, record low unemployment in the U.S. and actually throughout the rest of the developed world, but wages have continually underwhelmed, which differentiates this from almost any other recent cycle. I want to put some numbers on this. The U.S. jobless rate right now at 3.9% is the lowest in several decades. Even in the housing bubble-fueled previous cycle in the 2000s, the jobless rate never dropped this low. It bottomed out at 4.4% in early 2007, and yet wages were almost a full percentage point higher than than they are now. That's a very significant difference for an economy the size of the U.S. And it's actually not just a U.S. issue. In Japan, unemployment rate is below 3%. In Germany, it's also below 4%, just like in the U.S. And in the U.K., which is going through Brexit and all the other associated headaches, the unemployment rate is right around 4%. Yet throughout all of those economies, just like in the U.S., we have no significant wage growth. We're going to discuss how much of this phenomenon can be explained by cyclical factors and how much of it is structural, driven by improvements in technology, machine learning, which may be depressing wages now and could last for years to come. Now, this puzzle is so important for two reasons. First, the lack of wage growth has been a big contributor to the growth of income inequality. Labor's share of national income has fallen across countries as wages have stagnated and corporate profits have risen. Workers are just not benefiting from this long expansion the way one would expect based on previous business cycles. This has had some obvious economic and political implications, and it's clearly been a factor in the rise in populism across the developed world. You could look at some big events like the UK's decision to withdraw from the EU or the current U.S. administration's focus on reducing the U.S. trade deficit and reworking our trade agreements as both being linked in some way to this stagnation of incomes that has permeated the developed world. At the same time, though, given just how tight labor markets are now, it is possible that we could get too much of a good thing if wages start to rise too sharply after not rising for much of this cycle. We think central banks are looking at wage growth as the canary in the economic coal mine. Higher paychecks are a potential catalyst for a general rise in inflation, which we would expect to be met with aggressive tightening. Eventually, the effort to fight inflation often tips an economy into recession. And look, it can either be the result of tighter policy directly, such as in the early 80s under Volcker, or it could be that higher rates expose some fragility in the economy, like what happened around the housing crisis or as the dot-com bubble burst at the turn of the previous century. Right, which is why this cyclical versus structural question is huge. Financial markets have benefited greatly from the lack of inflation, 
and from the accommodative monetary policy that has uh, accompanied it. Economic growth has been steady, corporate earnings have risen, and equities have had a great run. At the same time, losses in fixed income have been limited since the economy just doesn't seem to be heating up. Certainly, some additional wage growth would be a welcome addition to this mix. But like you said, Ajay, if it picks up too much, a lot of these market benefits could unravel very quickly. Central banks have to get more aggressive, rates have to rise, uh, and the equity markets could fall sharply. True. But on the other hand, if wage growth has been depressed mainly by structural factors and not cyclical ones, and is not set to spike, then there is no reason why status quo shouldn't continue. An unemployment rate that continues to dip lower, healthy job creation, well-behaved inflation, and central banks remaining accommodative. This is a world where all-in yields remain low and equities continue to do well. The economy is neither too hot nor too cold, just the way Goldilocks would have liked it. From a financial market perspective, equity markets can continue their run, even as losses in fixed income stay limited. Admittedly, from a political perspective, it would mean, though, that the political forces unleashed by stagnating incomes in the last several years are here to stay. Well, that leads us to our main questions. Why is wage growth so low, and is that about to change? I'd say there are two main classes of explanations, cyclical and structural. We're going to take each in turn, starting with the cyclical. And one thing to keep in mind is that this cycle has been characterized by premature calls for a return to inflation, really from the very first quantitative easing programs announced at the very start of the financial crisis. Any cyclical explanation has to address what forecasters have gotten so wrong for so long. I'm going to lay out the cyclical argument, which is basically standard economics with a little twist around recoveries after a financial crisis. Financial crises are characterized by severe job losses and very slow recoveries. This makes measuring the true level of slack in the labor market quite difficult. People leave the workforce, they don't show up in official statistics, but they're out there ready and willing to work if and when the environment improves. So the mistake that the bond bears and the inflation hawks have made in prior years wasn't that wages won't rise once slack in the labor market was exhausted. It was that they underestimated labor market slack. So the fundamental tenets of economics still apply. Once we run out of workers, we're going to have to start paying them more. It's just that there were more available workers out there than people realized. Our recent research shows that 5 million workers withdrew from the labor force during the crisis in the U.S. alone. Now, a little bit of that is because of demographic trends. So the U.S. has an aging workforce, and some people enter retirement, so you lose some workers. But the majority of those people withdrawing from the labor force was disheartened workers who were dropping out of the economy. Now, after several years of healthy labor markets, we are finally back to trend participation just this quarter. To sustain the current pace of employment growth, which in the U.S. is averaging about 200,000 jobs a month, we're actually going to need participation rates to rise above trend. Now, that's possible. In fact, I would say I expect it to happen. But at this point, it's not going to be enough that the jobs are simply out there and available. To draw more people into the labor market, it's going to require higher salaries. All right, hold on, though. I have an issue with that explanation in that it presumes an all-or-nothing process. 
If there are some potential workers out there, salaries don't budge and once there is no one left to be hired, wages rise rapidly. I think that oversimplifies the process. Any given job requires a specific set of skills. And as the unemployment rate falls, some jobs get harder to fill and those wages rise, even if aggregate slack remains. We should have had measured well wage inflation well before now, even if it wasn't happening in every region for every job. And remember, that was exactly what the Fed thought would happen for a long time, which is why they have been forced continually to reduce their estimate for full employment. Anecdotally, we've heard for years that companies cannot find workers in many states, skills mismatches are rampant, some firms are hiring felons, etc. But the fact remains that this has not translated into aggregate wage growth yet, and that remains a hurdle for the cyclical narrative. If you want to look past anecdotes, consider one data series. The skills mismatch series in the US, the JOLTS survey, is at all-time highs. And people will point to that as indication that wage growth is set to spike. Here's one problem though. That series has been making new highs since late 2015 and yet we are where we are on wages. Well, I'm not really so sure that what you describe there, Ajay, isn't behind the modest wage growth that we have seen. Right now, I think we have a tale of two economies, a high skill, high wage economy and a low skill low-wage economy. And both productivity and wages in the high-skill economy are actually going up, but they're stagnating in the low-skill economy. The aggregate wage statistics that you cite really average across those two different populations. So now think about those people who are entering the workforce, the ones who were pushed out during the crisis. They are less likely to be software engineers at Apple than they are likely to be competing for jobs where that skills gap is less of an issue. That means the broad-based wage gains don't happen until we've worked through that supply of potential workers, which, I'd point out, we seem to have just done this quarter. I'd also add that the U.S. just passed fiscal stimulus, and we're flirting with a trade war, which was the subject of our previous episode of The Flip Side. Trade war could lead to reduced trade and higher prices. I don't think it's that hard to foresee an inflection point where wages go from not really rising at all to rising so fast that the Fed reverts to a more normal hiking cycle. And I definitely don't think that markets are prepared for the reality of eight to nine hikes a year instead of three to four. Yes, there could potentially be an inflation impact of several tenths of a percentage point in a really bad trade war. But even that would be a one-time shock to inflation, which central banks will almost certainly look past, just like they did in 2012, when a big run-up in oil pushed up core PCE inflation in the US, about 2% for a few months. Bigger picture, there probably is some cyclical component to wages. But the lack of any real aggregate wage gains through nine years of expansion, through a period where the unemployment rate went from 10.5 to below 4, suggests that something structural has changed. You spent some time on the cyclical side, I want to do the same on the structural side. And the one structural factor that I really want to emphasize that I think has broken the link between wages and the unemployment rate is technology and how that is affecting work. Well, Ajay, I get a bit nervous when people talk about technology and work. There is so much noise out there about how humans are about to get replaced by robots. Besides the irony of talking about the disappearance of work, 
at a time of record low unemployment rates, basically throughout the entire developed world. I think that argument ignores our historical experience with technology, more or less since the invention of the wheel. New innovations do not displace humans in the workforce. People have been making doomsday predictions about the disappearance of work since at least the Industrial Revolution. In the U.S., President Johnson actually commissioned a panel to study this issue in the 1960s. These predictions have never come to pass, and I don't suspect they will. On that one point, Jeff, I agree with you. In fact, I think that line of thinking that technology displaces labor at an aggregate level completely misses the point about why technology actually does matter to labor markets. It's not in jobs lost. It's in wages depressed. Hard automation, where a machine completely replaces a human, typically occurs only after decades of integrating a new technology fully into an economy, by which time the affected workers have moved on to other jobs. Instead, technological advances in the workplace usually come in the form of soft automation. Some aspects of a job get automated in a way that augments, complements the efforts of a real person. Now, obviously, it tends to be the more routine aspects that get automated. But just because something is routine doesn't mean that it doesn't need skill. And when a machine takes over a task like that, the job needs less skill. More people can do it. With more available workers to do a job, wages go down. That means two things happen in tandem. Lots of jobs created and low wages. Exactly what we are seeing right now. I'll give you a specific example. Uber in London. Black cab drivers in London have historically earned a good middle class income. In order to qualify as a cab driver, you have to pass the knowledge. It's a famous test of London streets and landmarks. Passing the test took up to three years of studying. A potential driver spent as much as tens of thousands of pounds. You know, anyone who's been to London can easily understand why. And so there were only so many cab drivers at any given time. And then you know what happens? The combination of smartphones, GPS and Uber completely changes the game. All of a sudden, the only skill needed to drive a cab in London is apparently the ability to drive on the wrong side of the road. And guess what happens after that? The number of drivers explodes, employment increases because of Uber drivers, but wages for existing black cab drivers collapse. That's a clever example. And I think it is clear that Uber caused both a rise in employment and declining wages. Actually, it did basically the same thing here in New York City, uh, but for a different reason. New York is a grid, so memorizing the streets isn't really the issue. What Uber did was effectively break a monopoly that taxis had on ride hailing. So you get uh, the same result, albeit through a different mechanism. But here's one challenge to the story you laid out, Ajay. While tech and Uber... Uh, get a lot of press, the lack of wage growth is an issue throughout the economy. So this effect that you're talking about needs to be much more widespread than just tech to have a noticeable aggregate impact. Uh, but, but it is. This argument, the structural argument that I'm laying out is not dependent primarily on cab driving. Three big changes are happening simultaneously. First, the digitization of economies. Second, the continued collapse in data storage costs. And third, machine learning breakthroughs, as well as the collapse in the cost of computing power that allows these breakthroughs to be used commercially. 
Every transaction now creates data. We can now store the data and machines can now extract patterns from it. The insights from these patterns reduces the skills needed to perform a very large, a surprising number of jobs. Think about predictive analytics, which is used by sales across industries. They reduce the amount of customer-specific knowledge or long-term relationships needed to understand how to service a client. But that was a big part of what salespeople usually used to get paid for. In medicine, individualized machine learning is starting to produce evidence-based, customized treatment options used by oncology doctors, which makes diagnosing and treating patients easier. There's a bunch of such examples. Okay, here's a tougher challenge. What you're telling is a very different story from the one that people typically tell about technology. Usually, we think about technology as improving productivity. We get better machines, more efficient processes, better equipment. That makes workers more efficient. That raises wages, not lowers them. Why is this current crop of technologies that you're talking about having the exact opposite effect on wages? So technological improvements should eventually raise productivity and thereby wages, but the key word there is eventually. Turns out the pattern of technological leaps not showing up in productivity and growth for as long as a couple of decades is completely consistent with historical experience. Economies just need much longer than you would think to use new technologies to boost productivity. Wait, hold on a second, AJ. It just takes time doesn't strike me as a particularly compelling explanation. Either technology is having a big macro impact on jobs and wages, or we haven't quite figured out how to incorporate all these new techniques into the labor force yet. You can't have it both ways. You know, sounds completely logical, but no. The reason is because the first tasks that get automated are those that constrain hiring or expanding. If the skills required for a task were in sufficient supply, it would not be worth investing in the automation in the first place. So it's no surprise that Uber ends up being one of the first use cases. The lack of cabs was a real constraint on transportation. And the first macro impact does ends up being more jobs and lower wages. The productivity gains kick in when workers take advantage of the routine tasks being automated to devote more time to the less routine higher value-added parts of a job. But that's also the part that takes years to play out. For example, over time, salespeople will be able to cover more accounts as they fully utilize the new tools. Or the predictive analytics that help guide customers to the right products will help manufacturers bring better, more successful products to the market in the first place. Such as the data from Netflix being used to reduce the number of box office flops. We're not at that stage yet, but it will come. Goldilocks's porridge might not get too hot or too cold. It could just end up becoming more filling. Well, that is a future we can all look forward to. Thanks for joining this episode of The Flipside. Clients can read our latest research on labor force participation on Barclays Live, and everyone can read more about the implications of technology on work in Robots at the Gate from our Impact series. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flip Side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com IB.